You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Allie Fitzgerald-Smith. This podcast is brought to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Charlie Jung Studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. This is episode five in a six-part series called The President's Club, which parallels an all-new special exhibit at the Nixon Library. Joining us again is the author and curator of that exhibit, Bob Bostock. Today, we're discussing the unique and unlikely friendship between Presidents George H.W. Bush and Clinton. Well, Bob, the relationship between these two did not begin on the friendliest of terms. In fact, it appears to have begun during the intense and very public rivalry of the 1992 election. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, Allie. Uh, President Bush and uh, then Governor Clinton, Governor of Arkansas Clinton, had you know come across each other from time to time at events where governors were involved in, and Vice President Bush when he served as Vice President under Reagan, and then during President Bush's term, you know, national governors meeting, things of that nature would come across each other, but they really didn't uh, start to spend a lot of time together, shall we say, until the 1992 election when. Um, President Bush, late in 1991, really up until nearly the end of 1991, everybody assumed was a shoo-in for re-election because of his uh, popularity for his prosecution of the Gulf War mm-hmm. when Saddam Hussein and Iraq invaded Kuwait. Uh, Bush's approval rating got up to like 89% or something um, in the in January, February of 1991, everybody thought he was a shoe in to the point where a lot of the Democrats who would have run didn't, didn't decided not to run because they thought there was no way of beating Bush. Uh, Clinton decided to get in the race because he thought, well, this will be a good warm up for when I run in 1996. You know, I'll have, I'll have done it once and uh, I'll be a better candidate when I run in 96 when when Bush has uh, completed his second term in, in office. Of course, it all turned out to be. Much, much different. So let's talk about the 1992 election. Was it a nail biter? What happened? Uh, it was a very interesting election in 1992 because there are some parallels with the 1912 election. You had an incumbent Republican president running against a Democratic governor with a third party candidate, a third party candidate who actually ended up doing pretty well, uh, which is not usually the case with third party candidacies in the United States. But you had President George H.W. Bush, who had spent eight years as Ronald Reagan's vice president and then had been elected president in his own right in 1988, running it uh, for re-election in 1992. Uh, Bush had reached the peak of presidential popularity in early uh, to mid-1991 when he led the coalition that defeated Saddam Hussein in his invasion of Kuwait. And... Um, that election, you know, running going into that election, everybody thought, you know, Bush would, would do well. But towards the end of 91, the economy started to soften, mm-hmm. uh, running into 1992. Uh, Bill Clinton, the governor of Arkansas, no president had ever come out of Arkansas before, uh, decided to run for the presidential nomination. He wasn't the only uh, nom- only person running for the Democratic nomination. There were others, but he he ended up getting the nomination, I think, to a lot of people's surprise. Uh, he, he had some trouble in the early goings, uh, particularly in Iowa, lost the Iowa caucuses, and then did much better in New Hampshire. Didn't even win New Hampshire, but uh, claimed to be the comeback kid because he had done much better than he did in Iowa. Mm. And went in and, <laughs> went, in and uh, went on to win the 
win the Democrats nomination in 92. So it was uh, it was an election between a seasoned uh, president who had been on the national scene and the national government for 20 plus years, not only as um, president and vice president, but he had served as American ambassador to the United Nations. He had been CIA director. He'd been the first um, he didn't have ambassador rank, but the first person we sent in the equivalent of ambassador rank to the People's Republic of China. So here's a guy with a lot of experience on the national stage running against the governor of Arkansas. And the whole thing was complicated when this businessman from Texas named H. Ross Perot, who was really concerned about the federal deficit, decided he was going to run as well. And at first, people kind of laughed off uh, Perot as a crank. Uh, he had a, a very distinctive way of speaking. He liked to hold up little charts showing about the deficit and spending and all that sort of stuff. But he really took he really took fire. And uh, a lot of people at that point decided, you know, let's take a look at this Perot guy. Um, he's talking some common sense in a very straightforward fashion. Not a not a polished politician in any way, shape or form. So you ended up with uh, Perot kind of being this wild card in the race. And as the campaign went on, you know, Perot was going to run. And then he decided, you know, I'm not going to run. I'm pulling myself out. And then not long before the election in November, he decides, oh, I'm in again. <laughs> so, mm. was, you know, he ended up being on the debate stage with the uh, with with uh, President Bush and with Governor Clinton. And uh, so you had these three way debates, uh, which was kind of interesting. And when the votes end up being counted on Election Day, what a year and a half earlier was assumed to be a complete walk in the park for George H.W. Bush ends up with with Clinton winning, um, winning in the Electoral College and carrying a um, plurality in the popular vote. President, uh, or I should say President-elect Clinton ended up with 43% of the popular vote. President Bush had 37% of the popular vote, but Barrow took 19% of the popular vote. And there's been a lot of discussion back and forth, back and forth over the years whether Perot cost Bush the election, um, or whether those Perot votes would have been divided between the two candidates. You know, there's no way of knowing for sure. But certainly, a lot of the people in President Bush's camp felt that uh, Perot cost uh, President Bush's re-election. And it's you know, and and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of uh, parallels with the 1912 election with Taft, the Republican incumbent, running against Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic governor of New Jersey, with Teddy Roosevelt throwing his hat in the ring as the third party candidate, which clearly denied Taft his second term. And a lot of people feel that Perot, by throwing his hat in the ring, denied Bush his second term in office. How so it, Bush, was, uh, it was an interesting year. <laughs> how did Bush handle the upset? Well, Bush was very gracious, as as one would expect. He always conducted himself publicly in a very gracious way. He had spent election night 1992 down in um, Houston, Texas, where where his home was. But he came back to Washington the following day. And I happened to be working in Washington for a member of Congress. And my wife was working for the Republican National Committee. And we were all asked to come down to the White House to welcome uh, President Mrs. Bush and Vice President Mrs. Quayle back from Houston. And I can remember very vividly being on the South Lawn of the White House the day after the election with thousands of other uh, people uh, there to, to greet President and Mrs. Bush after they came back from 
from Texas that morning after having lost the presidency the night before. And it was a very poignant moment. They had um, they had kind of a, a corridor lined up uh, across the South Lawn and the president and, and Mrs. Bush and the vice president, Mrs. Quayle, landed their helicopter on the ellipse and then drove to the lower driveway on the South Lawn down by the fountain, if you will, and then walked up through this sea of people cheering for them. And I remember you can see on the on uh, particularly Mrs. Bush's face, uh, the president was trying really hard to look upbeat for his supporters, but Mrs. Bush looked not upbeat, let's put it that way. And they went up onto the um, onto the balcony of the South Portico uh, on the on the outside of the Blue Room, not up on the Truman balcony, but the balcony underneath, and uh, waved to their supporters. And I actually don't remember whether President Bush made any remarks or not, but they you know spent a little bit of time up there uh, waving to all the people on the South Lawn who had come to greet them as they returned from this defeat, and then then went into the White House. Um, it was a very, very poignant moment. But President Bush, reading his diaries later on, you, you, he, he talks about how really crushed he was by the defeat. Uh, he felt he let down a lot of people by not winning. Um, it, was, it was a difficult loss for him to take. But in, as in his nature, uh, he, was, he was very gracious about it when uh, the president-elect, President-elect Clinton, came to visit him in the White House. Um, he and uh, he met with uh, the president-elect. Mrs. Bush had pulled herself together by then and met with Mrs. Clinton and gave her the customary tour of the of the White House uh, uh, family quarters and you know told her a little bit about how the White House runs and things to look out for and, and gave her some advice on um, you know how how the Clinton's daughter Chelsea would fit in and you know all that sort of thing. So they they handled it um, in certainly in a public way in a very very gracious manner. Let's talk a little bit about the Clinton presidency. How was it different from H.W. Bush? Uh, what did the prospect of a President Clinton represent to the nation? Well, we talked in the last episode about the generational change from Eisenhower to Kennedy, and the same thing was true in this election. Bill Clinton was the first baby boomer president. Uh, prior to President Bush, every president from John F. Kennedy through to President Bush was part of the World War II generation. They had every president over that period had served uh, in the war in some capacity, uh, whether in, in a combat zone or, or in other things having to do with the war, but they all wore the uniform. Uh, and they were all part of that, what we have since come to call the greatest generation. Uh, Bill Clinton was the first of the baby boomer generations to become president of the United States. So you saw that generational shift. Uh, it was very obvious in how they conducted themselves in office. You cannot imagine uh, George Bush or any of his predecessors going on a show like Arsenio Hall and playing the saxophone, for instance. Mm. Uh, and uh, just in the entire way Clinton conducted his presidency, it didn't. It was much more kind of free form in terms of how he interacted with his staff and and um, you know interacted with members of Congress. It, it had a very very different feel. Uh, from the Bush presidency and really from all the presidencies that, that came be came before that uh, period, so it was um, it was different in that respect, and of course it was different in the policies that were pursued, uh, particularly in, in President Clinton's first two years, uh, while he had control of the Congress as well as as obviously the presidency. 
uh, after after the uh, election results of 1994, the first midterm when Republicans took control of the House and uh, things changed a lot. You saw Clinton move much more towards the center. Uh, but in those first two years, he was governing uh, more to the left uh, in terms of uh, his pursuit of national policy. Of course, most famously, the pursuit of uh, a national health care plan, which uh, did not succeed uh, and would not succeed again until Barack, Barack Obama came into office uh, after the 2008 election. So that was another 16 years before that happened. But just to, just kind of a whole different feel to the way the presidency was conducted and that generational shift, which, you know, occurs every every so often. In this case, it was, what, 32 years after Kennedy was elected, you saw the shift from the World War II generation to the, to the baby boom generation. So to that end, does Clinton seek um, advice from Bush at any point? When did their paths cross again after 92? So, yes, President Bush conducted himself in a very gracious way towards President-elect Clinton, even though the defeat was very difficult for him to take. And I think one of the most telling things, which has since become a tradition, is President Bush left a letter in the uh, drawer of the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office for the new president, uh, wishing him the very best of luck uh, as he as he comes to to become the president. And he ended the letter by saying to, to President-elect Clinton, your success is now our country's success. I am rooting for you. And every president since has left that sort of letter uh, for his successor. Uh, president Bush was the first to write it in that way. President Reagan apparently left a letter for, for President Bush, President George H.W. Bush when he was elected, but it was a much more jocular letter. It was it was actually written on a piece of uh, stationery that had a picture, a drawing of a turkey on the top. And it said, don't let the turkeys get you down. <laughs> but uh, Bush's letter was written on, on his presidential stationery and, and was much more serious in tone, wishing the new president uh, the best of luck. And uh, talking about how he never, President uh, Bush talked about how he never really found the office to be lonely, as some presidents have said. And, uh, you know, he, he cherished the opportunity to serve the American people. And as I said, wish the new president uh, the very best of luck and said he was rooting for him. Does Bush serve as an advisor to President Clinton? When did their paths cross again after the 1992 election? You know, their paths would cross again, uh, you know, occasionally at events that bring together presidents and former presidents. Certainly President Clinton came to the opening of President Bush's library. They were all, all the former presidents were together at President Nixon's uh, funeral services and Yorba Linda, but they didn't really develop much of a of a relationship during that period. And it wasn't until they were both former presidents that they started to develop what turned out to be a very unexpected and very close relationship. And that happened in 2004. Uh, in 2004, President George H.W. Bush's son, George W. Bush, was towards the end of his first year or his first term, rather, as president. Uh, when this enormous tsunami hit uh, countries in uh, Southeast Asia, including Indonesia, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and others in that area, killing upwards of a quarter of a million people, it was at the end of uh, at the end of 2004, the day after Christmas, when the tsunami hit, creating just incredible devastation to that region. And President uh, George W. Bush thought 
while the United States government had committed quite a bit of money to help the recovery from that tsunami, he thought it might be a good idea to uh, raise some private funds for the assistance of the countries that were hit so hard by that terrible, terrible natural disaster. So he asked his father, President George W. Bush, and he asked his predecessor, President Bill Clinton, if they would work together to raise money to aid the victims of the tsunami. And they both agreed. So they traveled literally halfway around the world to Indonesia, Thailand, and Sri Lanka uh, to see the devastation for themselves, to meet with the people there, meet with the leaders of those countries, and also meet with some of the people who had been affected, who had lost their homes and their businesses and family members and everything else, so they could see firsthand uh, exactly the scope of the devastation, and so they could make appeals to raise money to aid the victims. And as a result of that visit, the very long ride on the airplane from uh, from the United States over to Indonesia and, and the other countries, they spent a lot of time together talking. Uh, President Bush was charmed by Bill Clinton, as everyone who has ever met President Clinton has been charmed. Um, I've happened to talk with President Clinton at President Nixon's funeral for just a few minutes, and I, you know, I would have uh, walked over hot coals for the man by the time our five-minute conversation was over. He has a, a incredibly charismatic, but spending hours and hours on a plane in conversation with Bill Clinton, you know, President Bush was was completely charmed by him, and they struck up a real uh, close friendship that uh, endured until President uh, President Bush's death. They, uh, and it was very interesting because. The two men could not be more different in their approach to life and their approach to governing and and everything else. I mean, they were so completely different. Bush, having grown up uh, in wealth and privilege in uh, Connecticut, uh, Clinton, having grown up in uh, impoverished circumstances in Arkansas, you know, Bush, a war hero in World War II, shot down as a naval aviator and rescued uh, Bill Clinton, who took a lot of grief for not having served in the military and and uh, uh, and and pulled strings to get out of being drafted into the uh, service during Vietnam. These, these two men could not have been more different. I mean, they were polar opposites. But yet they shared the experience of serving as president of the United States. And uh, despite the fact that, you know, Clinton was the guy who beat Bush for re-election, uh, Bush was utterly charmed and uh, really... Clinton was equally charmed. Uh, Mrs. Bush would observe later that she felt that uh, that her husband, George H.W. Bush, became sort of the father figure that Bill Clinton never had. Bill Clinton's father was actually killed before in a car accident before uh, Clinton was born. And uh, his, his mother had remarried. He had a stepfather, but he never really had a father figure. And Mrs. Bush actually said that she thought that uh, her husband had become the father figure to Bill Clinton, as uh, their friendship grew grew closer through that experience, raising money to help the victims of that terrible, terrible, terrible tsunami in 2004. It sounds like they found a lot of success working together in the tsunami relief efforts as far as fundraising was concerned. Did they meet again in the humanitarian arena? Yes, they certainly did. In fact, less than a year later, when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast of the United States and did such terrible damage, in Louisiana, particularly New Orleans and Mississippi. The two men came together again at the uh, request of President George W. Bush. 
uh, to raise money for Katrina relief. And they traveled together down to uh, down to the Gulf Coast, again, met with the leaders down there, the government leaders, business leaders, met with the people who had been devastated by this terrible hurricane, and uh, again, raised money for the relief of Katrina victims. They raised over $100 million uh, in Katrina relief uh, funds, which was an extraordinary accomplishment for the two of them. And uh, they just once again renewed that friendship that had blossomed less than a year earlier in the tsunami relief. And that kind of, you know, between those two events, after that, they became real friends. You know, the, the Clintons would go up to Kenny Bunkport in the summer where, where the Bushes had, a, had their summer place on Walker's Point. They would play golf together. You know, they really became, they became good friends. And it was uh, very, very interesting to see how these two men who had been rivals and, and one having been defeated by the other for the presidency uh, became such close, not just allies, not just uh, comrades in terms of raising money for after natural disasters, but genuine, genuine friends. Uh, Barbara Bush, who was really skeptical about Bill Clinton, uh, particularly during the 1992 campaign, uh, thought he was not worthy of the presidency and certainly not a worthy person to defeat her husband. Uh, she came to say in later years, I love Bill Clinton. My husband, Bill Clinton, and I have become friends. Bill visits us every summer. We don't agree politically, but we don't talk politics. Uh, so that was, the, that was the kind of friendship they had. And uh, it just endured, uh, you know, for, gosh, for, you know, 15 years or so, uh, and became, I think, a, a great example of how, again, in politics, you can be rivals with somebody else, political rivals. You can oppose them in a campaign. You can run hard against them. Uh, you can say all sorts of unflattering things about them uh, during when you're running against them. Uh, and that goes in both directions. But, you know, when at the end of the day, uh, when they share the experience of having been the president of the United States, where they understand as really no one who had no one else except people who have held that job can understand what the pressures of that job are, uh, the demands it has on your time, the toll it takes on your family. Uh, only presidents can understand all of those things. And, and that's something they share that transcends politics. And I think that uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush and President Bill Clinton uh, found that out in a way that was very surprising to everybody. Uh, probably no one was more surprised than themselves. Uh, that that sort of friendship developed. But I think it says a lot about how politics can be in this country, that uh, while you can have a bitter political rivalry, when you share certain experiences and when you go in doing the very best that you can for your country, some people will agree, some people will disagree. But I think we can say of our presidents that they go in, they want to do their best. They want to leave the country better off than they found it. And there are different ways of achieving that, but they share that same sort of goal and they have lived through that same experience. They can become really knit together as, as Bush and Clinton did in, uh, in a way that I think is really very inspiring. Uh, in fact, the friendship that developed between the two men lasted almost, almost 15 years. And when President George H.W. Bush died in, in November of 2018, President Clinton was asked to reflect 
on uh, on President Bush's passing. And he said something that I think is uh, is very poignant and, and speaks to the depth of the friendship they had and the mutual respect they had for each other. He, he said, President Bush never stopped serving. I saw it up close, working with him on tsunami relief in Asia and here at home after Katrina. His remarkable leadership and great heart were always on full display. I am profoundly grateful for every minute I spent with President Bush and will always hold our friendship as one of my life's greatest gifts. Uh, that's, that's obviously from the heart uh, and obviously speaks to the depth of, of their friendship. The Bushes would joke about it. I think Jeb Bush said that uh, they consider Bill Clinton to be the black sheep of their family <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he was certainly very different in so many ways from, from the, the way uh, the Bushes uh, were raised. But uh, the whole family, I think, once the, once the two presidents got together, I think the whole family, both both families really, the Clintons and the and the Bushes, uh, came to have a lot of mutual respect and admiration for each other, but also a deep sense of friendship that uh, is almost almost unique, I think, in terms of of how these members of the Presidents Club over the years have have come together. Next week, we will talk about another unlikely pair that spans the generational divide when we discuss President Nixon's unique friendship with who was then a high-profile New York businessman. Yes, it will be fun to explore how President Nixon, former President Nixon, and a young, brash businessman from New York City and real estate named Donald J. Trump came to know each other in the early 1980s, and how Mrs. Nixon made a prediction of sorts that I think will surprise a lot of people. I can't wait to learn more about that next week in our sixth and final episode of the President's Club series. Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. Our guest today was the curator and author of the President's Club special exhibit, Bob Bostock. On behalf of the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Ali Fitzgerald-Smith. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Nixon Foundation. Please subscribe to the podcast and tune in next week for episode six of the President's Club. Mm-hmm.